It's a good reminder for us. I think sometimes, you know, <clears throat> as Michelle said, we're going through a lot in this country right now. Excuse me as I just clear some space. I like to move around. We're going through a lot in this country right now. And I think for a lot of us, we, we tend to want to either get involved in ways that we shouldn't get involved or we want to bury our head in the sand and pretend like nothing's happening and we're just going to wait it out. But I think that we actually have a, a kind of a unique opportunity uh, here at Elevate, but as, as Jesus followers, to actually lean into this time in our world and in this country right now and to share with people the hope that this is not the way it's supposed to be and that God has something better in store for all of us. God has sent us, we talk about this all the time, he has sent us as the sent ones of God to continue the mission that Jesus started and where to go in the way that Jesus went, just as it says in John, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I am now sending you. And we have a calling to go and be, you know, the hands and the feet of Jesus to those who otherwise would not be able to encounter the goodness, or the good news of the gospel. And so I think it's just important for us to remember that during this time where we're, we're dealing with, you know, still the, the remainder of this, this uh, medical pandemic, we're, we're dealing with, you know, turmoil with racial tensions in this country that are there's wounds there that are not healed still and you know it's an election year and and politics and everything else and sometimes it's easy to get wrapped up in all of all of that stuff and forget that Jesus says no man can serve two masters right you can only have allegiance one place and I believe that as as Jesus followers our allegiance can only and always be to Jesus and nowhere else. Are you with me? And so my, my prayer for us here at Elevate is that our allegiance would be with Jesus and we would recognize that he is Lord, not just uh, of, of you know, coming here together to worship, but he's Lord of every area of our life. And that means because the Holy Spirit lives in us, when we go out in this community, we are actually taking Jesus with us. We are taking the good news of the gospel with us. We are taking church, if you will, with us because we are the church. And everywhere we go, we carry the good news. We carry the message. We continue the mission that God has given us. So I want to challenge you guys with that. I know it's a crazy time we're living in right now. I know there's a lot going on, but I hope that we can continue to keep our eyes fixed on the author and the perfecter of our faith. And remember, that's where our allegiance lies and nowhere else. Um, I know we just prayed, but I'm going to have a quick word of prayer because I want to ask God to be with us. And then we're going to continue this series together. Father God, thank you so much for being who you are. Thank you that you have, have given us everything that we need to, to have an abundant life. You've shown us the goodness of who you are. You've given us a way of escape. You've given us uh, a hope for a future. And so right now, Lord, I pray as we continue this, this series together to, to unravel and explore the humanity and the personality of Jesus, I just pray, God, that, that you would allow us to open our minds and open our hearts and to see you for who you really are. We love you so much. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue our series uh, about Meet the Real Jesus, uh, and I've titled this, uh, this sermon, Outrageous Freedom. You know, there was a, there was a kind of a, a period early on in, in Jesus' public appearances. It really wasn't like the first public interaction that Jesus had had, but it was actually kind of like his first sermon, if you will, or his first, you know, uh, speech in front of a crowd. Uh, he, he gives what later is going to become known as the Sermon on the Mount. You guys familiar with that, the Sermon on the Mount? 
uh, he, he is actually outside on the, uh, this mountain, and he gets up in front of this crowd. And this is a big moment for Jesus. I mean, he is, he's laid out in detail his understanding of a life that, that, that pleases God. And, and so to speak, in, in a way, he is, he is kind of like Jesus has driven a stake in the ground. His star is ascending. Crowds are growing. And the religious leaders at this point, they're watching his every move. So I want you to watch with me what Jesus does next. Matthew chapter 8, we'll pick up in verse 1. It says, large crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. Suddenly a man with leprosy approached him and knelt before him. Lord, the man said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. Now I... I want to just pause for a second. This sounds just like one of those nice Bible stories until you actually comprehend what Jesus just did right here. I want you to understand this. First of all, this leprosy thing. Few of us have ever met a leper. Anybody here met a leper? Right? This is not something that is very common uh, today any longer, but the, you know, it, it's kind of, it, it's, it's hard for us to actually get a reaction when we read this other than, oh, poor guy. Right? Like, we, we don't even, like, have a mental comprehension of leprosy. We don't really understand it. I want you to picture this man as someone who is in the, the late stages of a very debilitating physical disease, okay? Emaciated body, nearly bald, wheezing, face ravaged by ulcers. Like this guy is in bad shape, okay? So I want you to understand this first of all. Secondly, the thing that I want you to understand is the Jewish attitude toward those who are infected. The Jewish attitude towards lepers. Lepers were required to cry out as they went through a village, unclean, unclean, warning everybody around them in just in case somebody accidentally touched them because if they did, they would have become religiously defiled, unclean, okay? I want you to understand this. Leviticus chapter 13 actually made it clear. Uh, it says here, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So this is kind of where they, they get this from. This guy is clothed in rags, bandana over the face. Maybe we can relate to that part, right? We can get that part. His hair is dirty and matted and falling out. I mean, talk about being ostracized. This guy is lonely. This guy is, is, is like separated at a level that I don't even think many of us can comprehend. In Israel at that time, to get within a stone's throw, how far can you throw a stone? Think about it. If you were within the distance that you could throw a stone of somebody that had leprosy, it would be risking jeopardizing your own righteousness and reputation. The way people viewed you. So this is the danger that Jesus is faced with as he comes down off the mountain from the Sermon on the Mount. And this leper approaches. Anybody ever seen the, um, the show, The Chosen? There's, a, there's an episode in there, I think does a really good job of depicting the attitude of this. The leper comes up to Jesus and the disciples start freaking out. I mean, like at one point they're like pulling out knives, like get away from us. And, and the calm that Jesus has toward the whole situation is just really powerful. It's really powerful. So Jesus is faced with this, 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 this danger. The man comes near to Jesus, but he doesn't come too near. 
right? He knows that he has to keep a distance. What does Jesus do, though? And I want us to notice this. He reaches out and he touches him. He touches him. That, like, this is beautiful beyond words. I I want us to grasp this. Jesus does not need to come into contact with a man in order to heal him, does he? We're all on the same page there. He doesn't need to touch him. I mean, there's all these accounts where all he does is say the word and people are healed. Even people that aren't right there. They're over a county, right? You know, they're guy and, oh, your faith has made him well. But he touches this guy. Why? Why does he touch him? Mark's version of, of the story says that Jesus was moved with compassion. He who can be so immovable is moved rather easily when he's moved for the right reasons. Because this is the one thing I think that this man needs. It's the one thing this man needs. Nobody has touched him for a very, very, very long time. Nobody. I think to be starved for a human touch is actually worse than starving for food. I really believe that. The kindness of Jesus in this one act is alone, enough for me to fall in love with him just in the kindness I see here in this one interaction with humans. But so is what I call his kind of outrageous, scandalous freedom that Jesus walks around with. Because now Jesus is defiled, right? At least according to all the proper authorities of the day, he's just touched a leper, right? He is unclean. He is defiled, Jesus is, is just getting his ministry going. He has a message he needs to get across by, you know, even his own admission. I mean, this is why he came, right? This is why he came. I think Mark chapter 1 says, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Like, this is what he is there for. Credibility is fairly important at this point, especially given the fact that he just gave the Sermon on the Mount you know, and the way that he, he presented everything to the people there, he has begun to challenge cherished notions uh, of the, 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 the ty- religious tyrants of the day, right? He's beginning to challenge them. But here in his very next move, coming down off the mountain, Jesus is almost guaranteeing that he will be disqualified by what he's doing. Emotionally, politically, this would be the social equivalent of a young up-and-coming pastor giving their most important message of the year, then stepping outside, lighting up a cigarette, and drinking some tequila out of the bottle as everybody files out of the church. I want you to comprehend like the significance of this. Now, this is obviously metaphorically speaking, but Jesus doesn't seem to care. He doesn't seem to care at all what they think of this. Or better yet, he cares very deeply, but he cares about the right things. He knows exactly what he's doing. In the Sermon on the Mount, he completely overhauled their understanding of goodness. He overhauled their whole comprehension. In a sort of kind of Copernican revolution, he moves the concept of righteousness from the external to the internal. From the external to the internal. It's a far, far more demanding holiness, by the way, but it's one that will overturn legalism like a fruit cart. And then almost as if to say, let me show you what I mean, we have this story of Jesus touching the leper. Jesus touching the leper. The risks Jesus is willing to take with his own reputation are simply stunning to me. The fact that he's willing to take that risk of what's going to happen 
Consider the utter freedom of Jesus in the famous story of the woman at the well. It's found in John chapter 4. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, weird as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, I want to I slow down here because if you've been around Christianity for a little while, you've been around the church for a little while, I think sometimes these stories that we hear a lot can actually, we can become numb to them, Right? What do we actually have going on here? I want you to understand something very important here. Jews in this time period in history despised Samaritans. Okay? Like, like they don't ever speak to them for any reason. Paul Johnson, he points out, he says, The Samaritans were hated by the Jews with a quasi-religious fury and a form of local racism of the most ferocious temper. Think of how... Maybe in our current context, you could relate it to how a member of the KKK felt toward black people in the 1920s. Okay? This is, this is how the Jews felt towards the Samaritans. Now, consider that a Jewish man would never even speak to a Jewish woman that was not his wife. And a rabbi, a teacher, would never, ever, ever, ever speak to a Samaritan woman. Most of the times, the rabbis didn't even speak to anybody else that wasn't one of their disciples. One more detail about this story. This woman is sexually loose, right? She has what they used to call a reputation. She is sexually indiscreet at a time that this kind of thing could get a girl stoned. So we have a single Jewish man and a single Samaritan woman meeting at a well alone. Against every convention, the man initiates a conversation. What's the girl to think? I mean, she's had more than a few drinks bought for her in her past. I want you guys to understand that this encounter, this encounter is scandalous right from the start. This doesn't happen. Like, this would never take place in the world of this time period in history. This is a white man asking a black woman for a ride in her car in Birmingham at the height of segregation. Are you with me? I want us to comprehend this. Jesus, though, he doesn't even hesitate. Jesus is utterly free from those religious and social prejudices disguised as, you know, this is what good people do. He is willing to take what would have been considered fatal risks with his own reputation. Meanwhile, it's actually with regard to the religious that Jesus seems most radically free. You know, according to them, his attitude towards the Sabbath is shocking. Matthew chapter 12, there's the story. Pick it up in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? 
how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus' students, his like soon-to-be ambassadors, you know, his disciples, uh, they are, are breaking the Sabbath according to the religious leaders. They're breaking their, 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 their version of how you should keep it. But Jesus comes to their defense. He defends them. He defends their actions. You understand by this point, the authorities think he is far too dangerous, and he is. In, in their minds, Jesus is, you know, he is continually breaking the law and also encouraging others to do so. They kind of see him as an outlaw, and they certainly end up hanging him on a cross like one. This is how he ends up, ends up dying. In order to understand what compels this man, you must keep in mind the distinction between the laws of God and the laws of men. Okay, And furthermore, this magnificent difference between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. That measly, you know, picayune, trivial, petty rulemaking that, that the Pharisees had, and many people today suffer from the same condition, that kind of stuff actually ends up hardening your heart to God while stiffening your own self-righteous attitude. No wonder Jesus hates this stuff. Matthew chapter 15 Verse 1, then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat? Pick it back up in verse 7, the same chapter. Jesus says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to, the, to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. You can hear in the way that Jesus is talking right here, Kind of the disgust towards, towards them. He says, hypocrites, you blind guides. And then, just with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes us to a, a deeper, truer view of holiness. Of what this is really all about. He, Jesus is saying here, he's saying the issues first and foremost, they are internal. They're internal, the issues of the heart. Before they are ever, ever external. You can murder someone without ever pulling a trigger. He goes on and he, he says, you know, you know, you've heard it said that you cannot murder, but if you hate somebody in your heart, you've already committed murder. Right? He, he goes and he talks about these kind of things. Letter of the law versus spirit of the law. All those external kind of rules of men do nothing to promote a genuine holiness. They don't. But they do make people Pharisees by the truckload. Jesus 
Jesus' freedom is a difficult thing to preach on for many reasons. And I'm going to name two of them as, as I'm, I'm winding down. First of all, there are certain types who will hear this, and they will find it an excuse to live as they please. Right? There's certain types of pe- people who will hear a message like this and say, oh, wow, I can do whatever I want. Many people that live in the world today, I think, we live in an age of irreverence. An age when people don't care what others think. And this kind of freedom is abrasive and unholy. Okay? It's different. The freedom that Jesus models is not like this crass, you know, like, giving the finger to the world. This is not what Jesus is doing. Okay? Secondly, there are others who will dismiss the freedom that Jesus offers out of fear. Either the fear of what people might think, which ironically enough is sin. You know that, right? Or the fear of falling into immorality. So let me be very, very clear. I want to make myself very, very clear. The scandalous, outrageous freedom that Jesus models for us in the Bible is based on an understanding of holiness much deeper than anything even the most religious people have ever concocted. Are you with me? It's much deeper. Remember, Matthew 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. The only possible way that can happen is through an internal revolution, right? That's the only possible way. A a changed heart. When we have a heart like Jesus, this is the only possible way. One more example, Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointments. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. My goodness, this is another scandalous scene, isn't it? Jesus, again, is in the middle of a scandalous episode once again. This woman is wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, and she's kissing them. A very intimate encounter. A very intimate encounter. She obviously has lost all of her capacity to give, you know, she she doesn't care what the nice people think. And Jesus doesn't seem to have ever bothered trying to to care about what those people think either. He is no respecter of persons, the Bible says, not at least as it is with most folks in this world. This is utterly remarkable in the society of the religious. For the fear of man rules that world. Right? I want you to understand this. In, In the religious circles, fear of what other people think is a very powerful controlling thing. It's a very powerful motivator, and it's the primary reason for some of the most ridiculous man-made rules that have ever existed. Fear of what other people might think. Verse 39, it goes on in this story. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. Can you believe the arrogant self-righteousness of these guys? Like, I mean, it is a sinner who invited him to dinner. It's a sinner who's running the synagogue, too. 
We're all sinners. Jesus answers patiently this time. Apparently, this Pharisee is open to a new way of understanding goodness. And he goes on, and he says she's a sinner, and then it says Jesus answering said to him, Simon, we know his name, by the way, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Having rescued Simon here in this moment, this Pharisee from the religious spirit, Jesus turns to attend to the precious heart of this brave woman who has entered so boldly, so humbly, and she is exposed at this moment to the scornful glares of all the other guests. They are whispering not too quietly about what's going on. But Jesus, being Jesus, he covers her. Look what he does, verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loves so much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. If you do not understand this scene right here, you don't understand Christian holiness. If you don't get this, and if you don't find this one of the most beautiful stories you have ever read, you will not want Christian holiness. And if you don't get this, I think you're going to find it really difficult to understand Jesus. Jesus is free. He's free. He's free from what people think. He's free from religion. He's free from false obligation. People won't like it. People won't understand it. They'll draw false conclusions. They'll point fingers and worse. He is free from all of that as well. Man, to have the kind of freedom that Jesus has. The more you fall in love with Jesus' genuine goodness, which is true goodness, the more you'll absolutely detest the counterfeit of false piety and a shallow morality. As Jesus did. Jesus had a wild freedom that was born out of a profound holiness profound holiness which I think makes him one of the most remarkable people I've ever known he is the most remarkable person I've ever known and he's so much more than just a person he's fully human yes but he's also our savior he's our creator our sustainer he is everything to us and the same freedom that Jesus has he offers to us he offers to set us free, not just from the shackles of sin, but to set us free from always being burdened with wondering what other people are going to think and how they're going to judge and how they're going to act. 
I think what Jesus wants each and every one of us to experience with this freedom is the same thing that he experienced. When you're following God wherever he leads, you don't care about anything else. If we are following Jesus wherever he leads, it'll set us free to stop worrying about what other people think, to stop worrying about what's going to happen, to stop worrying about all that other stuff. Jesus was free, and he's calling us into that same freedom if we will allow him to do the work in us that he wants to. Pray with me. Father God, man, it is so awesome as we just continue studying and learning and growing about all the different aspects, Jesus, of your personality and your character, the humanness and, and yet the, the, the deep holiness at the same time. Jesus, man, I, I, I just pray in this moment right now for us that we will, we will not be caught up in the, 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 the games that the Pharisees got caught up in. That we will not get caught up in going through the motions uh, where, where you, 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 you spoke to the Pharisees and you said you're like whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead bones. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You care about what's on our inside. The motivation, the things that drive us. Where our allegiance lies. So God, I pray that we will focus on the inside, not the outside. Both with ourselves and with others. And help us to be more and more like you each and every day. We pray in your name.